So we're starting a new series on the um, book of Ecclesiastes. I tend to say it wrong. Um, I, I am known to get my, my speech messed up from time to time. I don't know if you've ever noticed that. I often say silly things. My wife tells me I say silly things all the time. Um, and of course, the word Ecclesiastes is actually the Hebrew form of the Greek word of the Hebrew cognate, which comes from the word ecclesiastical. You know, have you heard of the Ecclesia, the called out ones? So Ecclesiastes is actually the word, Greek word for Ecclesia. See how Ecclesia is in there? You don't see how Ecclesia is in that word. It's there, and of course it means the church. And of course it's the, it's the, it's the, um, it's the participle form. So it's the person who does things to the church, which means it's the preacher, the teacher, the collector of Solomon's wise words. So uh, time has gone very quickly, so I'll get right into it. Father, we just pray right now for an encounter with your word. Lord, the, the words of Mike will have absolutely no effect. But Lord, in the power of your Holy Spirit, one word from you can change our life forever. Help the preacher, we pray. And everybody said, Amen. In former years, in the old days, we used to get wisdom, say wisdom, with your neighbor. We used to get wisdom from old people. <laughs> Aged persons were treated with incredible respect and honor. And the older I get, the more that's important. It was understood that people who lived a long time probably knew some stuff because they'd lived so long. You see, there didn't used to be a thing called Google. I know, I'm sorry to, sorry to shock you. There was no Google. There was no internet. There was no library. And you probably couldn't even read. So how did you find out stuff? You went and you found a person with grey hair and you asked them a question. If you wanted to know something, you would ask an old person, an elder, a statesman, an old lady. But most people today, particularly young people, get their wisdom today from our culture, our worldview our likes, our preferences, our range of choices, our options is now being shaped by media. It's our music, our magazines, and our movies that are now actually shaping the way that we see the world. So let me quote you one of the greatest and most influential philosophers of our generation. I can't get no satisfaction, but I try. And I try, look, he can't sing either, so what's stopping me? <laughs> I can't get no satisfaction. But I try, and I try, and I try. If you haven't got the message yet, and I try, and I can't get no satisfaction. And of course, he can't spell either. You know, when I'm driving around in my car and a man comes on the radio, he's telling me more and more about some useless information supposed to fire up my imagination, but I can't get, no, satisfaction. So, yes, here's a famous philosopher. His name is actually Sir Mick Jagger. This tune was the hit that probably made a normal pub band one of the most successful rock and roll brand, band brands of all time. In fact, the industry's peak magazine and uh, critique named itself after the band. And so Rolling Stone, the magazine, 
Now, in this tune, I can't get no satisfaction. Number two of the 500 best rock and roll songs of all time. So here's the incredible twist. Mick Jagger was not only a prophet and a sage to our contemporary culture, but ladies and gentlemen, he's also an old man. <laughs> In fact, that's lipstick and that's hair dye. <laughs> so now he's 71 years old. I'm feeling so young, Gary. <laughs> 3,000 years ago, how many years ago? Were you listening? How many years ago? There was another old man who had the world at his feet. He had more wealth than Mick Jagger, probably had more women than Mick Jagger, had more power than Mick Jagger, had more influence, more experimentation with life than the old rocker. And his name was Solomon. So the book of Ecclesiastes is the record of the wisdom of an old man who found that he could find no satisfaction, quote, under the sun. So the text sets us up for the story. Chapter 1, verse 1, the words of the teacher, Kolohet in Hebrew, the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, saith the teacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What do people gain from all the toil from which they toil under the sun? Now, that is a great question. It's a great question. It's the biggest question of life. What's it all about? Can there be any discernible meaning in this mad world? What's the purpose of it all? What's the meaning of life? And please don't say 42. So let me give you a little bit of background. Over the next few weeks, we'll be focusing on this most unusual book. Let me ask you just to try and read it in one sitting over the next few weeks. It's only 12 chapters. It's a short book. And try not to think too much about the detail, but try and pick up the feeling or the message that the author wants you to hear. This book almost didn't make it into the Bible. The ancient scribes and Pharisees were a bit nervous about it because some of its content did not quite fit comfortably with the rest of Scripture. This book says some alarming things, and we'll try and unpack and explain some of these in our series. Hopefully, we will all get to understand why this book is in the Bible and why it's probably one of the most relevant books speaking to this generation today with powerful words of correction, and I'm going to use that W word again, wisdom. Just turn to your neighbor and say, wisdom. Let me give you a little background before we get into today's message. The author has been challenged by modern scholars, but there's still great evidence to suggest it was Solomon. The fascinating thing, if you pick up an old theology book, it's outdated. And most of the new uh, research and development has shown tradition, the traditional historic view is actually correct. If Solomon was the author, I believe he was, he identifies himself as the son of David three times. And it's interesting to note that if he is this author, then there's three phases to his life. Older people, tell me the truth. 
Does life have seasons? Ladies, tell me, does life have seasons? So here we have this incredible thing where we've got three books that Solomon's possibly written. One is the Songs of Solomon. That's the book of when you're young and silly. I was young and silly once. Yeah, I'm just old and silly. (laughs) See, progress. (laughs) He was young. And it's the story of love, isn't it? It's the story of chasing down your girl and getting her and then the first fight that you have and then how your little heart goes boom-bitty-boom-boom-bitty-boom when you actually upset her and then all that sort of stuff. That's being a young person. Does anybody remember being young? (laughs) So that's his early phase of life growing up. Then he gets into the book of Proverbs where you can see that he's trying to collect all these sayings of wisdom and what works and stuff. That's like your middle age. This is the man who's caught his bride. He's happy with the way life's going. Now he's trying to climb the mountain. By the way, I will sing for you tonight. Climb every mountain in my knickerbockers. So there you go. That's not a sight to be sneezed at. So he's in middle age, climbing the mountain, thinking that at the top of the mountain is the reward. You know, more gold, more women, more fame. If I get to the top, that's what it's about. And then the book of Ecclesiastes is actually the book of the man on the top of the mountain. Would you be interested, before you do all the effort of climbing, know what's at the top you know he's coming back down that mountain and he can tell you what's up there so this is what this book's particularly about so there is a clear theme the word hevel in hebrew which is translated in some bibles as vanity others breath worthlessness um fleeting it's, it's just meaningless. It's this thing. This word, vanity, it's in the book 39 times. It happens to be the number of books in the Old Testament. The, the phrase under the sun is also in the book 27 times, which happens to be the number of books in the New Testament. So, Hevel, 30 times. Worthless, useless. But in 12 chapters, if God's saying vanity, 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 useless, useless, futile, futile, fleeting, frustrating, frustrating. If he says that 39 times, he's probably trying to say something. I mean, I'm not that bright, but he's probably trying to say something. That all is vanity. All is ultimately worthless. And so this is substantially the story of the old king who Facebooks his experimentation with life. He chases happiness and success, and he gives himself over almost in a scientific endeavor. He abandons himself to the pursuit of pleasure. Uh, I've worked with uh, Ting Challenge in West Australia for almost 25 years now. I'm currently the chairman of this uh, great organization focused on providing rehabilitation, remediation to people with serious lifestyle problems, addictions. And, uh, you know, we get the worst and the best at Teen Challenge. And those who stay the course, it's interesting how they are incredibly used by God. 
over and over again, we get drug addicts, we get former enforcers, people who used to go around and beat you up if you didn't pay drugs. We get the worst. If they stay the journey, let God in the life, they end up being some of the most powerful people used ever in the kingdom of God. No, we have people that have led international revivals. People that have established incredible things around the world. Wayne Kadira, Church of 10,000 Hawaii would be one. You know, Steve's, um, Steve from Pensacola, that fella. He's the next Teen Challenge guy. Uh, George W. Bush was a graduate of Teen Challenge. So th- there you go. And one of the things is that we find is if you have already got to that stage in life where you abandon your life to drugs or you've abandoned your life to crime, or you've abandoned your life to sexuality and and those sorts of issues, or you've abandoned your life to whatever it might be. When they get Jesus, they find it actually relatively easy to abandon themselves to Jesus and his cause. And they do incredibly well as a result. So here's the outline of the book. Here's the problem stated. All is vanity. Vanity of vanities. Is there any benefit from life? Good question. Are you alive today? Good question. And then he says, well, okay, well, we'll find out. What's the thing that really makes life really rip for you? Is it the study of science? Is it education? Um, we have uh, some emerging, we have an emerging PhD in the, in the room today. He's uh, just about to become Dr. Rayner. He'll be doing very well. He's out there. And all this. But Rayner, too, it's not about study. We have some very bright people in the room. Wisdom, philosophy, people really know stuff. You know, like Sam maybe. Is it pleasure? Is it, you know, eating enough, drinking enough, having enough? Is it materialism? Is it just, you know, whoever has the most toys wins? Is it fatalism? Okay, Sarah, Sarah. Whatever, we'll, you know, just go. Ego, egoism. Egoism. Make it all about you. You know, religion. Some people think religion's what life's about. It isn't. <laughs> about Jesus. Is it about wealth? You know, have just have a little bit more, a little bit more money. Is it you know exploring morality? And, you know, having as many relationships you can. Well, he made notes. Would you be interested to know what he felt about academics, materialism, and fatalism? He made notes. And he gets to the end of it, and he says, I tried it all, and it's all worthless. It's all a vapor. It's all fog. And the only thing that really counts is a right relationship with God. He pursues pleasure only to discover that after the pleasure comes pain. The more pleasure you seek, the more you find that your pleasure becomes pain. If you don't believe that, just talk to a drug addict. If you don't believe that, just talk to a prostitute. If you don't believe that, just talk to an old person who will tell you the truth about what's really important in life. So the Bible has this idea of being smart. The idea of smart carries enormously different ideas today. In our popular culture, being smart means being able to work the remote control or dressing fashionably, like my little dress, or dodging the booze bus, or getting out of work. All that's considered smart in the popular culture. The Bible has a different idea about being smart. 
Would you like to know what it is? Three people who doesn't want to know what it is, who would like to know what it is. Do we go home? Okay, do you want to know? What you... oh, I, need, I need more encouraging than that. <laughs> the Bible has this idea that smart is the ability to do what is right. That's smart. You see, you can have a brilliant mirror. You can even be looking at the mirror and you could notice a smudge on your face. Knowing that there's a smudge on your face is not enough. Being wise is the ability to get some water and wash it off your face. In the Western world today particularly, we think knowing stuff is as good as doing stuff. But we actually need to do the stuff. And that's why the Bible says that the Word of God can even make the simple person wise. I am so glad about that. The most simple person can be wise if you'll simply do what the Bible tells you what to do. Properly interpret, yes, good counsel, all the rest. For example, if you're a young person today, the Bible says work and the Bible says tithe and the Bible says don't go into debt. You do those three things as a young person today. Work hard as if your employer is God. Ooh. I'm sorry, it's in the Bible. If you work hard as if your employer is God, I mean, he's not God. He may think he's God. She may think he's God. But you do it as unto God and you don't go into debt and you know how to be generous to God, you will guaranteed without an investment scheme be very very wealthy you will but you can actually go home and do the sums put it in you will by the time you're middle age be a millionaire as a minimum simply by being wise simply by doing what the bible says here's another idea for you don't get to preaching because we'll never get out okay stay with your notes mike here's another idea the bible says when you want to find a partner, find someone that mum and dad actually approves of. I know, I know that's not culture. I know that's not... Oh, yes, I can feel the pushback. <laughs> find someone that mum and dad thinks is good. Because sometimes we're attracted by pheromones. We're attracted by looks. We're attracted by those things. Actually, it's better to find... Your mum and dad's going to say things like, Does he have a job? Does he have his driver's license? <laughs> Does he know how to use a toothbrush? <laughs> is he going to be good to you? <laughs> and then what you do is you court in company and you become friends first. And then you make a commitment to explore the covenant of marriage. And then you get married and whatever happens, you're committed to do life together for the rest of your lives. See, it's not necessarily rocket science, is it? No, no, no. Is it so simple it could make you wise? Sorry for that. I probably upset a few. So. The parents are looking happy, though. So here's a mirror illustration. Looking in the mirror, knowing what's wrong, is not the same as being able to fix what's wrong. Knowledge is not the same as application. Psalm 19 verse 7 says, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The decrees of the Lord are sure, 
making wise the simple. And all the simple people said, Amen. Amen. Here's my question. Can you learn from another? Can we learn from others? Will Rogers made the observation, if you excuse my language, there are two sorts of people in the world. Those who can learn from others and those who just have to pee on the electric fence and find out for themselves. <laughs> you see, how long's Kath and Roger? How long have you guys been married now? 63 years. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> if you were smart, you'd sit there and you'd listen because they probably know some stuff. Slider. Can we learn from others? Can we learn from Solomon today? He did the big life experiment. He came up with the results. Are we open today to hear and implement the advice of the ancient philosopher? Solomon had everything. He experimented with everything under the sun. That phrase, under the sun, it's like shorthand for saying, if we take God out of the equation, and we simply look at this created order and we try to get all our meaning and all our purpose and all our sense of fulfillment, try to get our satisfaction only with what's under the sun, then, of course, it doesn't work because God's above the sun. You hear, you hear what's going on? Above the sun. And you want to know the results? Well, he says this, that life is fleeting. It's frustrating. It's futile. Life is hard, it's not fair, it's empty, it's disillusioning, and it's disappointing. And to quote the young vernacular, life sucks. So, here is the conclusion. Do you want to know what he decides? This is what you've got to do, given the fact that's what life's about. Guys, this is the honesty, this is the reality that we live in. He says, this is what you've got to do. Fear God and enjoy life. Fear God and enjoy life. See, fearing God keeps life in balance. But also, enjoying life keeps life in balance. Fearing God. See, the power of knowing that everything that you do will be assessed and judged by God will help Mike make better choices. Amen? If we believe that we are being watched from a distant shore, we will tend to behave better. If you know that there's a speed camera and there's double demerit points over the weekend, you'll probably be a little bit more careful with your accelerator. Amen. The story is told during the uh, Nazis' occupation of Europe and their grand plan to get rid of the Jewish problem Stories told of a German soldier who's got a Lutheran background, so he's sort of like got this God thing on Sundays where he can sing the hymns and go to church, but then on Monday to Tuesday to Wednesday, he's killing Jews. And uh, they've dug a trench. The Jews have been asked, this Jewish uh, group have been taken out to be shot. They've dug their own grave, and he's going along with his revolver, just basically shooting one after another after another. And he gets up to one man. Uh, one Jewish man who's about to be executed, and he just turns and says to the soldier, God is watching you now. 
He takes the gun out and shoots him again. But the thought didn't leave him. Somehow he had left it as God in his church on Sunday and hadn't had that ability to take God with him on Monday, Tuesday and Wednesday. If we can actually cultivate a revelation and understanding that everything I say, everything I do is visible to our God, it helps me live a better life. None of us get into the bad places if we really believe we've taken Jesus with us. So there's great power in putting God first. But the other thing is, it's very Jewish, fear God one foot, enjoy life the other foot. Fear God one foot, enjoy the other. The Jewish people, despite the persecution they've suffered, despite the law and, the, and, and all the stuff they've got to comply with and stuff, the persecution, the hardship, the Jews know to have a party. They absolutely know how to celebrate life. The toast to the Jewish people is lahaim, to life. To life, to life, let's have a party. They knew that to have a great celebration and joy life is a part of dealing with this world. Excuse me. One of the things that's happening in the Western world is that we are forgetting how to have fun. We are amused. We are entertained. And the truth is we're bored by most of it. We no longer know how to have fun. Fun is about people. You see, you can't really say you love God and you love life if you don't love people. I've had to work on that. I think I prefer to be a monk, alone on a little island somewhere with no people. But the more I love God, the more I have to come to the realization loving God means loving people. There's a lot more fun to be had with a cheese sandwich and a cold drink and a swimming pool with good friends than what you'll have in the best made movie that Hollywood can roll out. There's going to be a lot more fun today as we have a stupid sing-along party than what you'll have in the best nightclub in Perth. It's true. It's true. Learn to have fun. In the award-winning novel and stage play, The Long Day's Journey into the Night, it's a semi-autobiographical account of the author's life, living in a highly dysfunctional family of drug addicts. And this is the closing line of the play. The mother says this almost as a half prayer. She kneels down, clutching her heroine that she's about to shoot up with, her old blanket, just before she dies, she says these words. None of us can help the things that life has done to us. They're done before you realize it. And once they're done, they make you do other things until at last everything comes between you and what you'd like to be. And you've lost your true self forever. Let me say that again. None of us can help the things that life has done to us. And they're done before you realize it. And once they're done, they make you do other things until at last everything comes between you and what you'd like to be and you've lost your true self forever. 
See, Solomon knows how she feels. If he could whisper in her ear, in fact, if he could shout down the corridors of time, if you could hear him today, he would say, Fear God and do what he says. It is the only thing that makes sense in a crazy world. It is the only thing that really matters. Jesus talks about life under the sun. Matthew 7 in the message version, these are the words I speak to you. They're not incidental additions to your life. Home owner improvements to your standard of living. They are foundational words, words to build a life on. If you work these words into your life, you're like a smart carpenter who built his house on solid rock. Rain poured down, the river flooded, a tornado hit. But nothing moved that house. It was fixed to the rock. But if you use my words in Bible studies and you don't work them into your life, then you're like a stupid carpenter who built his house on the sandy beach, a house of cards. And Jesus concluded his address and the crowd burst into applause. They had never heard teaching like this. It was quite apparent that he was living everything he was saying, quite a contrast to the religious teachers. This was the best teaching they'd ever heard. The question is, who are you? What are you? Where are you? You are what you pray. You are what you see. You are what you say. You are what you believe. You are what you do. You are what you hear. You are what you confess. But the good news is, Jesus shows up. And he says, you are what I say you are. You will be what I say you will be. You are what I believe you to be, and you will do what I say that you will do. So here is the wonderful meaning. You are blessed and anointed and highly favored, grace beyond your belief, wonderfully and fearfully made in the image of God. Don't look down on yourself. Your father is the king of kings, and you are his special child. Here's a takeaway. When you're under the sun, make sure that you're building on the rock. Fear God and enjoy life. And uh, I have a nice little reminder here. Here's this. Uh, I've got to be able to read it. John was a painter. and He was given a job to actually paint the Catholic Church. One of those wonderful Catholic churches. They had to climb up onto a steeple. He's right up there painting away. And all of a sudden, this dark cloud comes over and lightning starts to come, terrible thunder. And all of a sudden, we get this incredible crack of lightning just missing his head. And so he's getting a little bit nervous. So he starts to fear God. And he says, God, what, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I want to give my life to you. What do you want me to do? And he, uh, and he hears this voice from heaven saying, repaint, repaint, and don't thin again. Repaint, repaint, don't sin again. Let's pray. Father, we, we've heard that you have um, 
inspired, Lord, the record of this wise old man Solomon who had it all. And Lord, after processing it all, he came to the conclusion that the best thing to do is to put you first and to embrace life as it is. And Lord, we know that you don't want us to have some sort of a cringing fear of you, Lord. It's not that uh, we see you as an angry God who just wants to beat us down and to put your big foot on us and just to twist us into the ground. And Lord, that's not the sort of fear. You're just asking, Lord, that we would put you first. That, Lord, we respect, Lord, your wishes and your intentions. And then outside of that, that we would then enjoy life. Lord, I thank you that all of this great good message that Jesus brought to us can be summed up with the the simple saying of love God and then do what you like. (laughs) Because if we love you, if we put you first, Lord, then uh, that keeps us centered, Lord, to what you want us to do. Lord, I thank you for my brothers and sisters this morning. Thank you for everyone here today that's taken the time to come and sit under your word. I do pray, Lord, that each of us would make an adjustment, Lord, within our hearts, wherever we are at, Lord, to one, put you first. And Lord, secondly, to make a decision to have a good time, (laughs) to turn off the TV, to throw away the distractions and all the amusements and actually find people and enjoy being with them. Lord, to learn what it is to lie on our back at night and look up into the stars and to try and count them, Lord, or to pick out the patterns. Lord, the art of sitting down, Lord, with a nice cup of tea and watching a sunset all the way through. Lord, the ability to pick a rose and just to fully smell it, to see it, to be enamored by its color. Lord, those simple things of life. Lord, help us to learn the wisdom of the ages. Help us to learn the wisdom of the sages. Lord, to love you and Lord, to enjoy life. And everybody said, Amen. God bless you, sir. We'll have our band.